Thanks to Joel and Brenda and their family. We're so glad they're part of our church family. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. It's good to have you here. I was observing earlier this morning that we have uh, Easter temperatures at Christmas prices. So uh, it's kind of weird to have it all warm outside. I'm Joe Case, the discipleship pastor, and we want to welcome you this morning to our worship service. If you're a guest this morning, uh, we're glad that you're with us. There's an information card in front of uh, you in the pocket there. If you want to fill that out and share your information with us, we'd love to get to know you. And Well, good morning. It is great to see you this morning. Great to be with you. Um, sorry, I'm trying to turn a flashlight off here. There we go. Um, good to be with you this morning. As I mentioned in first service, it's great to see some of our college students back with us uh, today, home for, for Christmas break. It's good to have them. I know some will be trickling in throughout the next week or so. Uh, it's always good to have them. Uh, as a youth pastor, I see them coming back from uh, while they're off preparing for, for their ministry, whatever that looks like, uh, it just reminds me as a youth pastor why I do what I do. Uh, so I love seeing them back. Uh, I'll throw a plug uh, for them. We're, we're having a Christmas Eve service on December 24th because that's Christmas Eve. It's a good day to have it. Um, December 24th at 6 o'clock, our, our college students will be leading us uh, in some, some worship. So you won't want won't to miss that. It'll be a great time. Well, hey, um, I want to talk to you this morning about what I would propose is the most boring part of Scripture that you can find. So I hope that you're really excited about that. Because it's really boring. But I hope to... Yeah, woo, there we go. Let me ask you this, though, before we get started in that. Is anybody in here uh, genealogy nerds? Like, would anybody... Okay, I see a couple of hands. Would anybody be willing to say, to admit that you have a subscription to Ancestry.com? Anybody? All right, there's one. Yes, all right, good deal. Um... I have, I have an aunt who is, this, who is the, uh, kind of the, the crazy genealogy person of our family. And, uh, and she, she's done lots of, uh, lots of research. Um, when I was in eighth grade, I had to do this big genealogy project. And she was kind of my go-to resource. I, I went over there and, and uh, I said, tell me about our genealogy. And while well, I didn't know that it would, re- like, you know, she'd bring out three big binders and put them down in front of me, uh, all this research that she's done, and she started going over this, and you know, it's cool when we find out that, like, um, that there's somebody really famous, or some, someone really popular in our genealogy, or when, when we can trace our genealogy, like, all the way back to the beginning, and, and, and my aunt, I think there was one person in, in our genealogy, or one line that she, she says she traced back to Adam and Eve, huh. I don't know how accurate that is, but that's what she claimed, and I, there was someone else who, uh, an uncle or something, who um, supposedly hunted with Daniel Boone. Again, I don't know if that is accurate, uh, if she kind of stretched the truth a little bit. There, uh, and we have a, uh, there's, um, my family has this um, like glass serving dish um, that my aunt swears up and down came across the country on a covered wagon with our ancestors. Now, the interesting part is I was at Walmart a couple weeks ago and I saw the exact same dish at Walmart. So I kind of, after that, I kind of started questioning Aunt Brenda's genealogy and, and heritage that she, 
she put together. Um, well, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about uh, why Christmas. We've been looking at kind of uh, interesting components of the Christmas story, and we've, we've asked the question, why Christmas? Why do we need Christmas? Why these interesting stories? And we started with Pastor Joe talking about why John the Baptist? Why is the story of John the Baptist important? And we, and we kind of discovered that um, we, we prepare for Christmas. We have to prepare ourselves for Christmas. And John the Baptist was the preparation for the Messiah. We prepare for the Messiah. And last week, Pastor Christie talked about why the journey? Why was there this pregnant woman who had to walk all the way to Bethlehem? Now, my wife is eight months pregnant. And the thought of making this long journey on foot, we went to Amish country um, a couple weeks ago. And just walking about around Amish country, I thought we were going to have about a six-week early baby. So I can't imagine this journey. And so Pastor Christie talked about why this journey and about how God is with us along uh, our journey every step that we take. Uh, today, I want to um, talk to you about why the shady women? Why, why the shady women? See, here's the deal. Matthew, Matthew, yeah, right, I, I see Bob Flint writing that down. <laughs> Write that down. Why the shady women? <laughs> Matthew, and the, we see two genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels. We see an account in Matthew, and we see an account in Luke. Um, Luke's, uh, Luke's account of the genealogy of Jesus kind of takes a look at Mary's lineage and Matthew takes a look at Joseph's lineage. And what we see in the book of Matthew is something very interesting. He includes four women in his genealogy of Jesus. Why is that interesting? You all have women in your genealogy, yeah? Yes. The answer to that is yes. In case you were not sure. You have women in your genealogy. But in this culture, in this society, women were very much second-class citizens. Uh, when, we, when you would put out a genealogy, uh, when you would trace the lineage through a family, um, it was the, the man's lineage that you would trace. And you would not include the women in this, in this genealogy. However, Matthew makes it a point to include four women in his genealogy of Jesus. And I, f- I find that kind of interesting. So we're going to take a look. Um, again, a genealogy is boring. It's the most boring part of Scripture. But in that, within that boring genealogy, there are four stories that I want to take a look at this morning um, because they're, they're pretty fascinating. The first one, um, actually, I will just, I'll, I'll go ahead and start reading just so you can see how boring it is, the, uh, <laughs> the genealogy uh, in Matthew chapter 1. If you want to go there, you can. I'm just going to kind of breeze through it until we get to these women. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So we have this first woman named Tamar. Tamar's story can be found in Genesis 38. I'm not going to take the time to read it because let's be honest, it's a little bit awkward. Um, There's some awkward things in Genesis 38. Uh, I'm going to do my best as I was preparing this, this, uh, this sermon. I was reading through these stories. And the stories were awkward, kind of like daytime television-worthy stories. And I thought, man, this could be really fun. I'm going to do my best to keep it as not awkward as possible. Um, if you would like to read the, the really awkward parts, you can totally read these stories. I'll give you the, the references, and you can read it on your own. So Tamar, Genesis chapter 38. Tamar was the wife of a man named Ur. That's a fun name. Ur, E-R, that's it, Ur. Tamar was, was married to a man named Ur. Ur was Judah's oldest son. Okay, so... Ur, however, was wicked, and God put him to death. Now, in this time, if a woman was widowed before she had any kids, um, the law was that the next oldest son would take this widow 
marry this widow uh, so that the, the family lineage could be passed through this family. So, Ur had a younger brother named Onan. Um, as tradition would go, Tamar married Onan um, so that she could have a child um, with, with this family. So, Onan and Tamar get married, um, and they, they have their relationships. However, uh, Tamar does not get pregnant. This is where it kind of gets awkward, so I'm just going to tell you. If you want to find out why Tamar did not get pregnant, it's in Genesis 38. You can totally look that up on your own. We'll suffice it to say that she did not get pregnant. Uh, Later, Onan, um, it says in the scripture that Onan became wicked as well. And so God put him to death. So Tamar, two husbands, Ur, Onan, uh, no kids, was widowed again. And Judah, the father, was kind of like, what's going on? Every, Every one of my sons that you marry seems to die. So Judah comes up with his plan. Judah says, Tamar, why don't you go ahead and go back to your family's country, to your family's town. You, you go there and we'll wait until my youngest son gets old enough to be married. And then we'll come find you. Right, like he's going to come find you, right? He killed off two of my sons. We know that that's not really what happened. But as a father, the two sons who married this woman die, right? So he said, Tamar, you go to, the fa- you go to your family uh, when, when my youngest son gets old enough, we'll come and find you. So the, so the years pass on, and time should be coming that um, the youngest son should, should be coming to marry Tamar, and that doesn't happen. Well, Tamar gets word that Judah is going to be traveling into her hometown. And she comes up with this grand plan. She's a widow. Um, she's been widowed twice, uh, still has no kids. She comes up with this grand plan. Judah's coming into town, and so she decides to disguise herself as a prostitute. Because why wouldn't you, right? Um, Disguises herself as a prostitute, sits at the edge of town, and waits for Judah to come into town. Judah comes into town, father-in-law. Again, awkward. You can't make it up, though. It's in the Bible. It's it's there. Father-in-law comes in, sees this prostitute who happens to be daughter-in-law, but he doesn't know it's daughter-in-law, and says, how much for your services? And so the two enter into a business agreement, and they agree upon a price. But Judah says, I can't give you your payment right now. I can, get, I can bring it to you tomorrow. And Tamar says, okay, what will you give me to kind of hold me over until, until you're able to pay me? Judah offers his signet, basically the, uh, the ring on his finger that carries his family name. Like it identifies Judah. It identifies his family heritage um, it's, it's almost like his personal ID, right? His driver's license, if you will. It has all of his information on it. So uh, that satisfies Tamar. She gets this, and they, they, they do their business, and, uh, and they go on. Judah comes back the next day with his payment that they've agreed upon and looks for this prostitute um, that, he, that he did business with and can't find her anywhere. Can't find this prostitute that, that, she, that he had found before. But in the midst of his looking, he gets word that his daughter-in-law Tamar had prostituted herself out. Now Judah's not really making the connection yet, and so he gets really mad. He says, there's my, my daughter-in-law, someone in my family has prostituted herself out. She needs to be put to death. She needs to be burned at the stake, which was the common punishment at this time for, for such, a, uh, such a sin. He says, she needs to be put to death. And, and so they, they go and they get Tamar and they bring her into Judah's presence. And Tamar says, wait a second, hold up, hold everything. I'm pregnant and the father of the child within me is the one who this signet belongs to. And they look at it and it has all of Judah's information on it. 
And I can just imagine Judah's reaction at that point. Like, that's a major oops, right? Um, It's really awkward. You can't make it up, like I said. You can read more about it if you would like to. But Tamar has a son. Now, that son's name is Perez. In the genealogy of Jesus, we find Tamar and we find Perez. But why? Why is there this... Why is there this woman who had this uh, deceitfulness to get what she wanted? Why do we find her in the genealogy of Jesus? I'm going to give you a spoiler. I only have one point to my sermon. That's it. One point to my sermon. Why is a shady woman in the genealogy of Jesus? I tell you this because our God is a God of redemption. Our God redeems stories. Uh, The the scripture that, that, um, that was read for... Um, for the Advent candles is Isaiah, in Isaiah 43. He said, Fear not, I have summoned you, I have called you by name, I have redeemed you. And then later it says, um, later it says, Behold, don't, don't worry about the past. Forget about the past things. I'm doing something new. God is a God who does something new with our stories regardless of our past, regardless of our present, where we're at right now. Our God is a God who redeems and he makes things new. That leads us to our second woman in the, in the genealogy of Jesus. We had, we had uh, found uh, Zerah, Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Uh, Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of, of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Okay, so we come to our second, our second female, Rahab. You can find her story in Joshua 2. Again, I'm not going to read it, just kind of summarize it. Let's put it this way. Rahab had a nickname. Her nickname was Rahab the harlot. She wasn't someone who just happened to um, disguise herself as a prostitute. She was neck deep in the lifestyle of prostitution. Rahab the harlot, you guys probably know her story. Uh, Rahab lived on the, uh, in, the, in Jericho in the wall, the city wall. Uh, her house was on the outer outside of the, of the Jericho wall. And we know the story that Joshua sent two spies into the city to kind of scout out this land that they were going to take over. And the spies, um, while they were there, they decided to, to take up their place in this prostitute's house. And so they're there, and we see that Rahab um, kind of tells the, tells the guys, you know what, I've heard, I've heard of you guys. I know who you guys are. I know your people. In fact, I've heard about your God. And I kind of think that she kind of had an inkling that this God was the real God, right? She says, if you will protect my family, then I will protect you guys while you guys are here because I've heard of you and I know what you're doing. And I kind of think this God guy's up to something, and so the spies agree. They say, you know what, that's, that's fine. We will save you and your family. Just hide us out. Don't tell anyone that we're here. So the city officials get word that there's these two spies in their land. And so they send people out looking for them. And they come to Rahab's door. And they knock on the door and she answers. And she said, yeah, they were here, but they went that way. <laughs> they, you just missed them. In fact, if you hurry up and go, you'll probably catch them. And we know that the two spies were actually hiding out in her house. And so the story goes on and, and the spies leave and then it's time to take over this land and they see that um, Rahab has um, lowered a scarlet cord so that they can identify where she's at. And they go up and they save um, her family and they take over the land. But we see later on in the story Rahab joined the Israelites. In fact, she married one of the Israelite men's, men's Israelite men 
and, uh, and, and had a child with this Israelite man. This story of redemption. Why was Rahab, why did Matthew make it a point to show that Rahab was in the genealogy of Jesus? It's the same point. I've only got one. You'll probably get tired of hearing it. Our God is a God of redemption. God redeems our stories. I have summoned you by name. I have redeemed you. Don't worry about the past. Don't worry about the fact that you're neck deep in this sinful lifestyle. Don't worry about the past because I am doing something new. God is a God who redeems our stories. That leads us to a third woman. Her name's Ruth. Um, it goes on that uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. You guys know the story of Ruth. She's pretty popular. But I wouldn't say that she was an immoral person. There's, no, there's really no record in, in, in the book of Ruth, in the story of Ruth, of her moral failure. So she doesn't really fit in with these other two women, but she still has a past. She still has a story because we all have stories, right? We all have stories. She has a story. We, you're probably familiar with the story. Naomi had two sons. Um, they were both married. One was married to Ruth, and both sons died. And, and Naomi said, my sons have died. You're widowed. You girls need to just go back to your, to your family um, because I can't provide another son for you. The one, the one wife says, okay, and she says her goodbyes, and, and she's off back to her homeland. But Ruth responds in a, in a, in a phrase, that, in a sentence that I'm sure you've all heard, you know, where you go, I will go. Right? I will follow you. Your God will be my God. Ruth says, nope, I'm sticking with you. I know that this isn't easy. I know that this is tough. It's not pleasant, but I'm going to stick with you. And then we see that later on, Ruth ends up marrying this man named Boaz. Um, as I said, Ruth was not one of these people who had this major immoral past, or even there's no record of her kind of slipping up or making this bad decision. But we have a woman who has a past and she has a story. She was a poor woman. She was, she was an outsider. She was an outcast. You see, she was a Moabitess. Say that with me, Moabitess. That's fun to say. It's kind of like Francisco. <laughs> elf reference. Watch the elf. Francisco. Ruth was a Moabitess. Um, she wasn't a Jew. In fact, she was outside of the covenant of God. She was an outsider. She was an outcast. She was poor. She had a story. She didn't belong. But she was redeemed into the family through Boaz. In fact, she would become the great-grandma of the great King David. Why? Why is she in this, in this lineage? Why does Matthew take the time to point out that she is in the genealogy and the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah? Because <laughs> God redeems. God is a God of redemption. I have summoned you by name. I have redeemed you. Don't worry about the past. Not, I'm not worried about the past. I'm not worried about how far you've gone, how crazy you are, how, how much of an outsider you are. I'm not worried about the past. I am doing something new. And he does something new in the life of Ruth. There's one more, one more woman. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Um, we know who Uriah's wife was, right? Bathsheba. 
You can find the story in 2 Samuel, another, uh, another slightly awkward story. Um, Bathsheba was, was King David's neighbor. Uh, she was Uriah's wife. Uriah had been sent off to battle like, uh, like all the other people in the, 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 um, the army, had been sent off to battle. And King David was, was at his palace and kind of overlooking the house of, of Bathsheba. And he happened to catch her bathing. And he was overcome by desire, right? And, um, and so she, he, he goes and he summons um, Bathsheba. And, and what is Bathsheba to do? You know, she, it's the king calling her. And so they have relations and, and, and she gets pregnant. And David, King David needs to uh, cover up his sin. And so he, he calls for Uriah to come home um, in hopes that he will sleep with his wife and his sin will be covered up. But we know the story that that's not the way it worked. Um, and then so King David, in this desperation, tried to cover up his sin and, and led him to murder. He sent Uriah off to the front lines, knowing that he would be killed. And we see Bathsheba, who's carrying this child. But we see in Scripture that this child uh, didn't live. As kind of one of the consequences of this, of this sin, this child did not live. Um, but Uriah was killed in war, and so King David had to take Bathsheba into his house as one of his wives. And we see that later she becomes pregnant again, and this child lived, and this child was Solomon. I've kind of noticed that that some people um, say that maybe Bathsheba had a little bit of the blame here. Maybe She probably knew that King David could see her, and that may very well be true. The scripture doesn't really say very well could be true but I kind of think that maybe she was stuck in a scenario where she just she had no choice she felt like she had no choice she was in a in a in a relationship of abuse of power how could you turn down the king you can't do that you can't say no to the king why was this woman who was stuck in this situation in the genealogy of Jesus. Why did Matthew decide to include her name while he was listing out the lineage of our King and our Messiah? It's because God redeems. God is a God of redemption. He redeems our stories. He's summoned us by name and he's redeemed us. And he's not worried about the past and he's not worried about what's going on right now. He's making something new. He is a God who redeems and makes things new. In a, in a time where, where women were second class citizens, Matthew made a point when he was writing the genealogy, the lineage, the record of the birth of Jesus. He made it a point to include these four women. And I, I have to think that it's because he wanted to show that God was doing something new. God was taking these women who had a little bit of a shady past and he was doing something new and he used these four women to do one thing, to bring about the Messiah, (laughs) to bring about the Savior, the one that would offer redemption to every person that walks the earth. He redeemed their stories to bring about the Redeemer. You have, a, you have a woman who, who, let's be honest, she wasn't really a bad person. Tamar probably wasn't a bad person. But in this desperate situation, she found herself making an immoral decision of lying and deceitfulness. But God redeemed her story. 
You've got a woman who, on the other hand, was neck deep in this sinful life, lifestyle of prostitution. God redeemed her story. You've got this woman who was not really immoral. There's no record of her immorality um, and, and bad moral decisions, but she was poor. She had a story. She was an outsider. She was outside of the covenant of the Jews. She was an outcast, but God redeemed her. And you've got this woman who was probably stuck in this relationship where there was an abuse of power, where she felt trapped and she couldn't get out. God redeemed her. God redeemed her story and redeemed her so that they would bring about the Redeemer, the Messiah, the Savior, who would offer redemption to everyone. Where do you find your story? What's your story? What's your, what's your past? Because I think there's two, two kind of takeaways from from this, these stories of redemption. First is this, God wants to redeem your story. Regardless of the past, regardless of where you're at right now, if you're neck deep in a sinful lifestyle, if, you're, if you just dabbled in sin and you found yourself trapped or if you're an outsider, God wants to redeem your story. They use these women to bring about the redeemer that wants to redeem your story. What's your story? Have you allowed God to redeem your story? He wants to do something new. Are you allowing him to do something new? But then this goes a little bit deeper to something that kind of steps on my toes a little bit. If God is the God who wants to redeem and uses even and redeems even these stories to bring about the Messiah, and he wants to redeem my story and he wants to redeem your story, guess what that means? He wants to redeem everyone's story. You know what else that means? It means that it matters the way that we interact with people who have not yet realized their redemption. I was driving in this morning and uh, just Paul popped into my mind and I thought, what if, what if Ananias didn't see Paul as someone who, who was a potentially redeemed child of God? Like this was Paul who was persecuting, killing Christians and God set up this divine appointment to meet with Paul himself. And what if Paul didn't, I'm sorry, what if Ananias didn't see Paul as a potentially redeemed child of God, but instead saw him as someone who was a threat to him and he wanted to take revenge on? What if Ananias didn't see him as a potentially redeemed child of God? Is that how you see people? Like, is that how we see, is that how I see people? When I see someone, do I see them as their past stories dictate them or their present uh, dictates them or do I see them as a potentially redeemed child of God? Steps on my toes. (laughs) It matters. It makes a difference in the way that we interact with people. Vicki, will you you come up and I'm going to have Vicki play um, because I believe that I believe that this is a sermon that calls us to action Um, and not just one where we say, oh, that was cool. Cool stories, Josh. Um, I can't wait to go read the real story so I can see the awkward part. But I think that this is something that calls us to action because I've got to believe that there are some of us in here who haven't allowed God to redeem our stories, 
to do something new in our lives because maybe we're too afraid that you, know, you don't know our real past. Um, I finished this first service and um, I was walking out and I saw Bob Sorality and, and, and Bob said, you know what? What if I have a lot of different past stories? I said, I think God can handle that. And he, and he knows and uh, he is certainly a guy who has been redeemed. And I saw Mike Griffith and I thought, man, that's someone who has been redeemed because I'm sure that someone saw them as a potentially redeemed child of God. So have you allowed God to redeem your story? Do you see others as potentially redeemed children of God? I'm going to let Vicki play just a few minutes of silence. Um, I, would, I would encourage you to respond however you see fit. If you want to respond in your chairs, if you'd like to spend time chatting with the God who redeems us at the altar, certainly feel free to do that. We're going to spend some time in silence and then I'm going to close us in prayer. God, we thank you that you are a God who wants to redeem us. We thank you for the redemption that has already taken place and the countless stories that we see and the stories that we see in Scripture, but not just the stories in Scripture, the stories that we are living here in our congregation. We thank you for your redemption. Thank you for your desire to not just leave us where we're at and stuck in our past, but you call us out. You call us to something new. You want to do something new in our lives. So God, we give you permission to do something new in our lives. We believe that you are faithful and that you are big enough to take whatever past it is, whatever stories that we have, you can redeem them and you can make them new. God, would you help us to see other people as potentially redeemed children of God. To not get so caught up in what their past stories are or even what their current stories are, but to see them as someone that you want to redeem, that you want to make new and you want to do something awesome with their life. We see these four women who you used to bring about the Messiah. So this Advent season us to, to remember did send us aside. You sent us a redeem. But you used people with broken pasts to do that. And hope in that. We thank you for that. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, have a great afternoon. Mm-hmm.